This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Bearden is being mobbed as our rule Boudreau and out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Down the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Welcome to another episode of our Tribe History presented by Progressive. I am your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. And on this episode, we are going to continue with part two of our podcast on the 1910 Chalmers race between Nap Lajway and Detroit's Ty Cobb. And so when we left off last week, or was it two weeks, the Nap was reinvigorated. He had dropped the role as manager and was a, a new uh, ball player for Cleveland at 35 years old. Best days were behind him, but he still had a little bit left in the tank. Once season started midway through April, Larry actually had a, a Pretty great April, batting 432, knocking out 19 hits in 12 games. When May started, the paper noted that Napoleon Lajoie showing old-time form leads American League hitters. Now, could Knapp keep up that blistering pace? Not quite, but throughout the season he had ups and downs, much like any other hitter in the league. And by May 15th, he hit one of those small snags, and he was hitting below 300 for a week. The paper said, despite his batting slump of the last week, Nap Lajoie continues to lead the hitters of the American League with an average of 425. Davy Jones of Detroit, who has played in only 12 games, is second with a 364. 
Harry Lord, captain of the White Red Sox, is really second with 344, followed closely by Speaker Wallace, Cobb, and Crawford. And by May 22nd, the paper was, uh, again, remarking on Knapp's average, it said, Napoleon Lajoie is the only American League player who has a batting average of over 400. Lajoie's mark when Thursday's game was ended was at 433. Throughout that season, the plane dealer was compiling averages of both the Naps team and players in the league, and it makes sense because, obviously, in 1910, you didn't have baseball reference or any other website to visit to uh, calculate that for you. You had to rely on the newspaper, and if you were a fan of Tris Speaker or someone on a different team, it was nice that the local paper would publish that for you. And by May 29th, towards the end of that month, it said, Cleveland Club is again last in batting, the Athletics leading. 300 list now comprises 13 players. Lajoie first in being the Naps' sole representative. So uh, not much of a season going for the, the Cleveland Naps at that point. But overall, in the month of May, Nap recorded 33 hits and 85 at-bats, four doubles, a triple, 11 RBI, and three home runs. And he only struck out twice. So he was sitting at 406 for the season. In June, Ty Cobb started to heat up, and on the uh, June 4th paper, it said, Ty Cobb is coming strong, but a certain distinguished Clevelander of the name of Lajaway continues to lead the procession. And like I said, the Cleveland Club wasn't necessarily a great team in 1910, and it was usually reflected in the writer's stories. On June 5th, the paper said, Why not let Lajoie play first, second, and third base, and shortstop, and come to bat four times instead of once out of nine? So again, the the team really couldn't hit, and you kind of had the polar opposites. You had Lajoie, who was at that time the best hitter uh, for that season, and then the team that couldn't even muster up another player over 300. As June continued onward, many of the stories that were run in the paper really focused on Nap because, you know, when you didn't have a, a winning team, you kind of wanted to uh, at least focus on the positive. Um, and it covered both his good days and his bad days. So in the June 22nd paper, it said Lajoie had a bad day at bat. But then by June 26th, it said pitchers fear Lajoie when at bat. As a result, he's often passed. So again, pitchers were, were walking him and uh, baseball reference doesn't have the intentional walks yet on their uh, their database but nevertheless they didn't really mess around with Lajoie and you could get away with that because Cleveland wasn't a very good team in 1910 so kind of worked your way around him when you when you could and again by the end of the month the race was heating up on June 26 the paper said both hitting harder automobile prize tends to help averages of Lajoie and Cobb the additional prize of an automobile has caused Nap Lajoie and Ty Cobb to slug more ferociously this year than last. And the pace which these two natural pounders are setting is proving much too fast for good hitters like Harry Lord, Eddie Collins, and several others. Tris Speaker is the only other batter who is keeping anywhere near up. So by the end of June, Nap tallied 35 hits in 93 at-bats with 7 doubles, 5 RBI, striking out zero times and uh, accumulating a 376 batting average for the month. And we roll on into July and 
as was mentioned in our previous podcast with our guest Rick Hewn, you'll, who you'll hear from later on in this this episode. Um, scorekeeping wasn't the science it is today. It wasn't as standardized. It was uh, kind of a little more loosey goosey. And the the newspaper said that there have been charges and counter charges of favoritism in scoring in the cases of Lajoie and Cobb, the two rivals for possession of the championship automobile. And it would seem as if Nap Lajoie himself yesterday wanted to show the Tigers the most convincingly that he had earned every one of his hits. So again, Nap going out there and, and making some clean hits that can't be argued. Again, more of the uh, the ball don't lie uh, expression and not trying to uh, put it out there that he's been complaining and, and trying to get favorable um, uh, scorekeeping from the home crowd. And by, by July, there's no hope for the Cleveland team winning AL. So you see uh, fans begin to focus their attention solely on Lajoie. And here in the paper, it said, but this year, Cleveland has little or no hope for a championship. Cleveland pride and Cleveland enthusiasm are not given so much for baseball, for the baseball club as for one man, Larry Lajoie, the big Frenchman who is making a splendid fight for the batting championship of America. This year, he is the old Lajoie, the greatest and most scientific of all ball players. Every baseball lover in Cleveland is praying that he may continue his good work and prove that the complacent Georgian Ty Cobb has been grievously overrated. And one picture I'm going to tweet out is uh, the Plain Dealer Rams little picture, and it's just Nap's eyes, and I, I forget the caption. It's on my desktop, but it's like the eyes of the best batter in baseball, and it's actually kind of scary, but I'll tweet that out. And throughout July, the paper records um, Nap's progress or lag thereof. July 9th, Lajoie popped out twice in the second game. That sort of luck kills the batting average pretty rapidly. Mentions the next day that he couldn't get a hit off a pitcher named Fred Olmstead, a White Sox pitcher. So again, his numbers weren't uh, doing great. And when, again, Lajoie didn't have runners on, they'd pitch around him and often walk him. Then by July 18th, uh, Lajoie's grip on the uh, automobile looked a little bit tighter or looser than it had been in the past. And the paper said, Lajoie has no option of auto. Cobb is eight points behind Knapp. Speaker is close. The Honorable Mr. Lajoie, leading noble of the Knapps, has no option on that seven-seated touring car, which a certain automobile firm will donate to the best batter in the major leagues the middle of the approaching October. A month ago, everyone was ready to believe that he had notified the auto people where to deliver the machine. But in view of the subsequent events, he probably did not. Despite his slump, Clevelanders are placing their faith in Lajoie to win the auto. He has been meeting the ball consistently since April 14th, too much so to remain in this present state of inactivity. And on a side note, during this uh, 1910 meh season, uh, Tuscarawas County native and uh, Cleveland ball-playing legend Cy Young recorded his 500th victory, and that was on July 19th, where Knapp won a cool two for five to uh, to help his buddy Cy Young. And later on, there's a photograph of and this is neither here nor there, just something that popped into my mind uh, at my desk. I have with we'll a printout, but it's Knapp, Cy Young, and Tris Speaker all in suits talking at the opening of Municipal Stadium, and uh, it's a cool picture. And man, I just 
you can't imagine the stories that these guys could probably tell each other. And if you could sit down with all three of them now, I'm sure you'd get uh, some pretty wild stuff, especially back in, in those days. So, uh, but three, uh, three great Cleveland legends and, uh, you know, again, the stories that they could tell. But back to 1910, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. And by July 20th, you start to see in The Plain Dealer what they called the Auto Chasers clip in the in the paper. And that focused on the top, I think it was around 10 guys, 10 leading batters uh, competing for, obviously, the, uh, the Chalmers. So you start seeing that a lot more. And the paper start to also... Um, uh, go deeper into Lajoie's successes and struggles. And by July 31st, it said, Lajoie is forced to sacrifice self when the hit and run signal is given. All that will be necessary to pull Nap Lajoie's batting average down to 300 or less will be for the Naps to pursue the same policy as they did in yesterday's game with St. Louis. Four times Lajoie went to bat with men on bases, and each time the hit and run signal was given. Three times he was outguessed by the opposition and actually forced to throw his bat at balls. So again, it wasn't just about Nap. He was trying to be a team player and, you know, you didn't want to cross up signals and get your guys thrown out. But at the same time, it was hurting his average when he was swinging at balls out of the strike zone that he couldn't drive for base hits. And on the same day of the July 31st paper, it ran the, the headline, Ty Cobb now leads in both the number of Number and length of safeties. Tris Beaker passes Lajoie in slugging during this week, but is still behind Knapp in the general average. So in July, Knapp uh, seemed to be tiring a little bit. He only batted 303, 37 hits and 122 at-bats, 9 doubles, 3 triples, and 11 RBI. So by August 1st, again, it was uh, Knapp's average was taking a little bit of a dip. Paper also said that it is said by the baseball critics that Larry Lajoie is a victim of the hit-and-run game. So is James R. Garfield. That style of play fattens no averages and wins no automobiles or governorships. Uh, James R. Garfield being uh, the son of the former president. I'm not necessarily sure his political history, but again, Knapp kind of worked his way into uh, a lot of stories. And later on, there's a story, and I didn't actually write it down, but it's in my head right now, that... Nap, uh, there was a, a young lady getting onto a train. They were going somewhere um, to one of the ball games, and ripped her skirt. And the porter went through and was asking other uh, women if they had a sewing kit, something to fix it. No one, no one. So they went to the next cart and uh, or box car, whatever you call them, and asked. And sure enough, Nap Lajoie was carrying a mending uh, kit in his travel bag, and the young lady was able to fix her skirt. So. Knapp seemed to find his way into stories here and there throughout that 1910 season. And by the end of August, it said the race for batting honors is close. Although Tyrus Cobb leads, he is expected to be hard-pressed. Many look for Lajoie to strike his stride when the team returns. That August looked a little better than July. He had 338 with 44 hits and 130 at-bats, 11 RBI, 11 double, and that put him at 355 for the season. Now by September 4th, uh, the headline, Lajoie gained some on Ty Cobb. Detroiter made but four hits last week to nine for Napoleon. So again, you start seeing more headlines that was that were just focused on those two players, you know, just kind of ignore the team and uh, focus on what really matters at this point, this exciting uh, race for this automobile. And, 
in an era when not everyone had a car. It was a uh, you know big deal for these players to be uh, winning such a grand, grandiose prize. September 6th, the paper said Lajway passes Cobb in the race for the auto by making five hits in six games at bat while Ty Cobb was going hitless yesterday. Nap Lajway succeeded in wrestling the first honors in batting from the Georgian, who had been leading the Nap's nap for the last six weeks. So again, this race is going back and forth. But there didn't seem to be any uh, bad blood between the two because on uh, the September 13th paper, it said, talk about enmity, enmity between two rivals. Ty Cobb happened along about 2 o'clock this afternoon and took Lajoie out to Bennett Park in his automobile. So Ty already has an automobile anyway, but uh, the two shared a ride from wherever uh, Lajoie and, and Cobb were staying. And then a couple or a couple days later, about a week later, um, September 18th, goes into play about the, the scores again. Another one of these articles, which is, is kind of, um, in, in hindsight, you know, oddly uh, uh, coincidental, I guess, uh, said Lajoie lets scores alone. Napstar believes official tabulators know their own business. Tim Mernon, the veteran baseball writer, pays his compliments to Nap Lajoie as follows. The race for what automobile in the American League is growing interest, with Cobb, Lajoie, and Speaker running along close together. I doubt a Speaker ever thinks of the matter. He certainly never gives one, uh, of, one of the impressions that he is after the prize as he never inquires after his record, which just the reverse in the case of Ty Cobb, who knows every official scorer and usually knows the number of hits he has been given credit for before he goes to bed at night. And if the official scorer fails to give Mr. Cobb all the doubtful ones, the flying Georgian becomes real peevish. Larry Lajoie would like to win the car, but you never hear of this great player questioning the abilities of the scorers. And Knapp ended up tearing it up in September with a cool 456 average, 41 hits in 90 at-bats, uh, 16 doubles, and 11 RBI. And here we'll go back to Rick, and he'll give us some more information on the batting race. Uh, so it came down to these two two players, and it actually went back and forth between Cobb and Lajaway throughout the year. Nobody really knew for sure when those uh, averages came came out into the newspapers, uh, how accurate they were. So, you know, we're we're, we're just kind of going uh, um, along with what whatever newspaper you happen to look at that day. So there were there were some discrepancies, and as I found out, I am going through the the newspaper uh, uh, records, the archives. There were some some fairly uh, significant. Uh, discrepancies, uh, depending on who you looked at and what you listened to, uh, as far as uh, who you were talking to on any particular day. Neither, neither the Tigers of 1910 or the uh, the Naps were uh, um, vying for the title as we entered um, October, early October. So, what what it really came down to was that this particular race and specifically uh, the race between Lajaway and Cobb became of national interest. There had never been an automobile um, uh, offered in this, in this fashion. 
Um, automobiles were uh, very much coming into existence and popularity, and uh, they were prized possessions. Here you had the old, sort of the old and the new. You had the uh, uh, the, the new and Cobb, feisty, uh, one of the um, uh, scrappiest ball players of all time, uh, disliked by by many of the. Uh, uh, his fellow ball players for the way he played ball, loved by the Tigers fans, but not particularly loved anywhere else uh, in the American League. And then you had uh, Lajaway, who had been been with the uh, American League since its inception in 1901, uh, fairly well liked uh, by everyone, and much much more uh, popular with his fellow baseball players and the fans around the league. Uh, so you're going into early October. And again, this has caught the national interest. Uh, actually, maybe may more interest in this batting race. The, the newspapers are printing the daily Cobb Lajaway statistics. Uh, when you look at the old papers, you'll see uh, it says automobile race. And many of them, there's a, a little box up at the top of the uh, first page of the sports page, and they have they have the uh, statistics, who's leading on that particular day, games remaining, whatever. And these players um, meet for their last time, the Tigers and the Naps, in, in uh, Detroit on October 4th. Uh, so when they get to the ballpark, they find a Chalmers automobile uh, sitting there, and a slew of photographers uh, wanting to take pictures, and they're they're all clamoring uh, for uh, one of the players to uh, get behind the uh, the steering wheel, and the other one can get in the back seat. And they're going to take photographs that are going to appear throughout the country. So they're at Bennett Park. Neither Cobb nor Lajoie, uh, despite what I fully believe was their intense interest in in uh, winning the car and being considered the best player in baseball, neither one wants to get behind the steering wheel. And uh, they, they both act like they could care less about this. It was a no big deal, uh, bothersome. Uh, Ty said, uh, Nap, you do it. I'll get in the back. Nap said, no, no, uh, you get in there, Ty. And it ended up that both of them got in the back seat because neither one would get behind the steering wheel. And it became a, a famous picture. In fact, I decided that uh, that's what I wanted to have if, uh, if the publisher was interested to, on the cover. As Rick was saying, both players were, uh, were featured in that car, and that was on October 6th in the Plain Dealer, so the day before, obviously, and said, Before the game, Lajoie and Cobb sat in the prize auto side by side and were photographed. They seemed to worry less about the prize than did the spectators. And also, to what Rick said, uh, Lajway was a little more beloved than, than Cobb. And you see that, too, uh, on October 2nd when Cleveland was uh, in Chicago. It said the Southside fans are with Lajway in the auto hunt and gave him a hand every time he went to bat. And going into that last uh, series of the season, which Rick will explain uh, the last doubleheader in more depth than, than I will, is that the paper was aware, at least according to their calculations, that, um, you know, what Knapp needed to do to win the race. And October 9th said, Lajolais' chances of being first in auto race slim. 
Cleveland player must make a hit nearly every time up in games today. Cobb quits for the season. Cobb actually went off to uh, help the, the, the teams going to the World Series practice against an all-star our group. Said, Lajway's batting slump yesterday when he made only one in hit and four at-bats uh, practically put him out of the race. St. Louis is surely the hoodoo town for Larry, as it was in the city that the Naps managed by him lost the pennant in 1908. Cobb left the Detroit team Friday night, departing for Philadelphia, where he will be a member of the all-star team that will practice with the athletics. The Georgian declared that he was not feeling very well. The fact that he was ahead in the auto race and he feared that he might take a slump in the two games yet to be played may have had something to do with the sudden decision. So here we have Rick going into a little more detail about that infamous doubleheader that uh, may or may not have given Knapp the batting title in 1910 and ultimately the Chalmers car. Um, the Tigers are going into Chicago to play a four-game series with the White Sox. Naps are going into St. Louis. The Browns um, were a last-place team uh, owned by Colonel uh, Robert Hedges. Uh, the, they were uh, a pitiful uh, team. Of course, these games were, were really going to be pretty meaningless. At the time, the, the Naps were, uh, you know, they were a fifth-place team in 1910, and the Browns were an eighth-place team. Likewise, neither the White Sox or the uh, or the Tigers were going anywhere in 1910 either. So you've got um, Cobb in Chicago. He plays the first couple games and he gets a couple hits, and he decides that he is going to uh, uh, he checks the newspapers there in Chicago. I, I would I'm not speculating here, but someone told him at least you've got a a pretty good lead here. He decides that he's not going to play the last two games. He thinks he's got the automobile and, and it's safe, at least in his mind. And he's been invited uh, to play a series of games on an all-star team, uh, prepping the uh, American League champion Philadelphia Athletics. They had clinched by then. Uh, prepping them for the 1910 World Series, which would be against the Chicago Cubs. Uh, the reason for this, uh, these all-star games were that the, team, the leagues did not finish on time. There, there was a discrepancy. American League finished the season uh, earlier than the, uh, than the National League. So, so Cobb takes off. Um, uh, it's going to be an automobile drive, I believe. Anyway, he's go very secure route, but anyway, he ends up in uh, back in the East and uh, does not play the last two games. Uh, meanwhile, the Naps are in, in St. Louis, and uh, just to give you a little background, uh, the, in 1910, the, uh, the St. Louis Browns won a total of 47 games. They were flat-out bad, uh, eighth place. They were managed by a first-year manager named uh, Jack O'Connor. Uh, his nicknames were Peach Pie and Rowdy Jack. It's the Rowdy Jack uh, nickname that I, I think is, is most apropos. I really had, over his career, had been labeled as one of the uh, uh, dirtiest players in the game. He actually played uh, seven seasons in Cleveland. He was a catcher. And... Um, 
he was he was uh, uh, struggling in his first year of a two-year contract. So the as as they go into these games, the first the first couple of games, a few things happen that might raise some eyebrows. But the, they go into the, the final day of the season, October 9th, in St. Louis. Attendance throughout the year had been horrible in St. Louis. I think they drew less than 275,000 fans in 1910. The, um, they have this final doubleheader uh, uh, of the year. And the, of course, the newspapers have been talking about the race. And an article appears in the one of the St. Louis papers that morning that uh, it would take an almost perfect uh, doubleheader for Lajewe to, to catch and perhaps pass Ty Cobb. Word has probably gotten around by now. Again, I'm, I'm only speculating, but a word I think has gotten around that uh, Cobb had taken off. That may not have settled well with some of the players. It certainly may not have settled well with uh, Rowdy Jack O'Connor. So you go into the uh, to this doubleheader on the ninth, and I'll just give you a quick rundown on uh, on what happened that day. Uh, it started out fairly normally. Uh, Lashaway came up to bat uh, in the first inning. He took a hard swing and hit a fly ball out to one of the outfielders, uh, a guy named Hud, Hub, H-U-B Northern. Uh, Hub was a, a rookie outfielder. It's hard to establish uh, just how good an outfielder he was, but uh, somehow the ball got past him. Some people think it, it should have been caught. Others thought that he misplayed it. Anyway, it was a hard swing by uh, Lajoie, and uh, he ends up with a triple. Second time he comes up is in the in the third inning, and he uh, grounds one to uh, shortstop. Uh, the the Browns shortstop was Bobby Wallace, who later was inducted into the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, a, a terrific fielding shortstop. And uh, he, somehow or other, Lajoie beat it out for a single. Base hit, uh, Lajoie not known particularly for his speed, although I, I do think he was a pretty good base runner. Uh, he stole some bases during his career, and he wasn't uh, he just was not a, a, a fast base runner like, a, say, an Eddie Collins or a Ty Cobb. Anyway, um, some people thought that uh, some of the observers at the game thought that that Wallace had lobbed the ball over, that it wasn't – he didn't throw it as uh, – as he normally would, and that allowed Lashway to beat it out. But anyway, through his first two at-bats, he's, uh, he's two for two. Uh, amazingly, there there was a crowd of about eight or 9,000 people in the stands, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, crowd of the year, drawn to this totally meaningless game between a fifth and an eighth-place team playing a doubleheader in October, drawn because of the publicity that had been generated and the excitement of this batting race, because this may have made a, uh, whatever happens in this doubleheader may make a difference in, in whether or not uh, Cobb gets the automobile or lash away. So the, the fans are buzzing and they're cheering and they're very excited about this uh, uh, two for two day. Uh, uh, they're all talking about, uh, could he do it? Can Lajoie do it? The third time up is in the fifth inning. And this time, uh, Lajoie bunts down to third base and uh, beats out a another hit. 
He's now three for three. But for those observers, especially the sports writers in the stands and the, and the more knowledgeable baseball uh, observers, uh, the third baseman, a fellow named John Red Corridan, a third baseman for the Browns, was playing very, very deep. Uh, sometimes uh, third baseman would play a little deep with uh, with Nap Lajoie because he was a fierce hitter, hit the ball as hard as anybody in the major leagues, certainly back in 1910. So they would play him a little bit deep, and not maybe not that deep. And so there was some buzzing about why would Corden be that far back. Um, just a little background on Corden. He was on uh, uh, October 9th playing in uh, – early 20s game. I think he had 22 or 23 games at that point, and only a few of them had been at third base. Uh, He'd been brought up uh, from the minor leagues by the the Browns and played a few games at shortstop when Bobby Wallace was out with an injury and then was uh, playing third base on October 9th in this doubleheader. So you could also argue that not being familiar with Lajaway and playing third base for one of the first times, that maybe uh, he would play a little bit deeper than than uh, the normal player. But maybe not that deep, uh, because the next time up, uh, Lajaway again bunts the ball and beats out a hit. He's now four for four uh, at the end of the first game. Um, the uh, The Browns won that first game for – for the, uh, those who really are interested in trivia, five to five to four. And um, anyway, so now we're going into the next game, game two. And just to uh, keep this short, Lajaway bunts the ball is, uh, in the first inning when he comes up, the third inning when he comes up, the fifth inning, the seventh inning, and the ninth inning. These are all bunts to third base. And, and of course, by now, the fans are really buzzing, but they're not they're not buzzing in the same way. There's cat calls, there's some boos in the stand the, the, the people booing, not not everybody, but quite a few was noticeable and the uh, various sports writers and there are keep in mind several newspapers in St. Louis, these guys these guys are, are pretty upset and uh, they're looking at each other and wondering what's going on. The Second time up in the uh, in this game too, actually uh, uh, was a, a little bit different than the others in that Lajoie was actually given a sacrifice. He didn't get a hit that time. Uh, there was a man on first base when he bunted. Official score for the uh, was the St. Louis Republic uh, re- uh, reporter was the official score for the Browns. Uh, actually ruled that that was a a, a sacrifice and an error, an error on the uh, on, on fumbling the ball. But they they gave uh, Lajoie the benefit of the doubt. So if you know your scoring, you realize that he did not have a time at bat uh, that time. So uh, he ended up the second game four for four uh, with a sacrifice. However, during the game, while the game was still in play, the, uh, the score was approached by uh, a former St. Louis Browns pitcher, now a, a, a coach and scout, uh, Harry Howell. Harry was a, a old spitball pitcher. He won over 100 games. He lost more than he won, though, during his career with the Browns. But he was a very popular player, and they called him Handsome Harry. Very good-looking gentleman. He came up to the press box 
after that second time at bat, when you recall that it was a sacrifice and not a hit ruled by the score, and asked the score if he wouldn't see his, see his way clear to change that to a, a hit. So you kind of see the drift here of where things are going here. There's an effort on the on the part of the Browns to to give Lajoie a, a good sending off to the 1910 season. Uh, a scorekeeper refused, and uh, Howell left. But then, as the second game rolled on, uh, the uh, Browns' uh, bat boy or mascot, never was totally sure, but I think it was the bat boy, probably. Anyway, he came, comes up to the uh, uh, scorer's table and hands um, the official score a note. And uh, the note, uh, which um, apparently was preserved, said that uh, uh, if you see your way clear to uh, change that to a, a sacrifice to a hit, uh, there'd be a uh, suit of clothes in it for you. <laughs> so things were getting a little bit out of hand. Again, the scorekeeper uh, turned it down, um, refused to do it, held fast. And uh, and when he sent in his uh, official report, that would be what he said. But a, an eight for eight day had people thinking that maybe Lajaway had uh, just went up uh, Ty Cobb and uh, and won himself a, a vehicle. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, as it would would come out that night, the official score received a telephone call from an individual who he assumed was uh, Larry Lajaway asking him to reconsider again, asking him to reconsider his ruling that that was a sacrifice and change it to a base hit. And uh, the man refused. Uh, later, Lajaway admitted that he had uh, made that, that phone call. And almost immediately, the newspapers were questioning what had happened. The plane dealer on October 10th said, Lajaway wins auto in final stretch by making eight hits in as many times up. Frenchman passes Cobb. St. Louis papers say Browns made it easy for Knapp Slugger. Unofficial figures show Lajoie ahead from three points to a fraction of a point. Official results may not be known for some time. Brown players are charged with not feeling as well as they might and have called the game Hippodrome. Now, the Cleveland leader actually had their numbers the closest. They added at uh, 382.4 and 381.7, which uh, Lajoie would have had 383 and Cobb 382. And again, uh, the the Cleveland papers were great. They were ecstatic for Lajoie. He beat Cobb. You know, mentioned how great this was. The next day, it said Lajoie, the peerless leader, not only Cleveland but also every baseball city in the United States, rejoices that Nap Lajoie has apparently won the batting championship over Ty Cobb. The reason for this strong partisanship are clear. Lajoie is quite ostentatious and gentlemanly. Cobb is a possessor of reputation for insufferable egotism. It is a small wonder that the sympathy of every baseball enthusiast outside of Detroit is strongly with Lajoie. It has been hinted that the St. Louis third baseman did not make extraordinarily strenuous efforts to field some of the drives in his direction during the final games. That the St. Louis players and audience sympathized strongly with Larry is beyond question, but the mere fact that the third baseman played back for Lajoie, a batsman who usually drives strongly through the infield, does not indicate chicanery or unfair play. At any rate, there was no question as to the legitimacy of the scoring of the hits. The offering of a special prize for the best batting record was a serious mistake. And at this point, Ban Johnson's uh, not thrilled. He says, 
uh, that there will never be another prize played for like this. And even if the assertions prove unfounded, the merest suspicion of crookedness works irreparably injury to the game. Um, Lajway then said, uh, it's too close for me to claim the victory in the auto. Take it from me. I am waiting until Ban Johnson and Robert McRoy tell me whether I have a better record than Cobb or Cobb has beat me. There is such a difference of opinion that I am not counting my eggs before they are hatched or taking a ride in the auto before Johnson and McRoy have poured in a little Cleveland gasoline. Kind of like that line. Uh, they talk about my not earning those eight hits in St. Louis, though uh, that makes me tired. The first time up, I smashed one to the outfield that went over Northern's head, yet some say he misjudged it. Then I hit one that Wallace was lucky to knock down. If that wasn't a hit, there never was one. Then we get down to those six bunts that I beat out. Suppose Corden didn't fa- uh, play fairly well back. If he had played in for a bunt and I had swung hard on the ball, I suppose the youngster would have been roasted to a turn because he did not play deep. Larry's statement that he had fooled the St. Louis players was born out of the statement made by St. Louis manager O'Connor of the Browns. Larry outguessed us, said o- O'Connor. We figured he did not have the nerve to bunt every time. He beat us at our own game. I will not send any of my players in to play close to Lajaway when he tries the bunt. And by October 13th, the paper said, Ban Johnson may declare Cobb uh, and Lajaway are tied in batting. American League president may order return of the prize auto to the donors because of the dispute which has arisen. Um, now, by October 16th, Cobb had been de- declared a batting champion. But nevertheless, both players were going to receive cards. And October 23rd, Larry uh, was noted with his wife, we're going to select his Chalmers model the next day. However, I'm going to uh, let Rick kind of fill in the details a little bit more about the aftermath. You can only imagine after that double header what some of the St. Louis sports writers wrote about the game. Uh, they 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 thought it was a um, a, a scandal. Uh, they. they um, and any anything any stronger words they could use, they used because they deplored what it what they had seen. They felt that uh, that the Browns had uh, had thrown the uh, uh, the game. Uh, a word that was used back in those days, hippodrome, was used. That they had actually uh, laid down uh, for for Lajaway to give him an automobile over Cobb. And of course, once those newspapers put out their, uh, those reporters put out their story, those were picked up by all the uh, newspapers in the country, and we had ourselves a, a full uh, national uh, scandal. And this was all uh, occurring right before baseball's big showpiece, the uh, 1910 World Series, which, uh, of course, uh, Ban Johnson. Uh, who was the American League president and also actually the the power in baseball at the time. Some people called him the czar of baseball uh, because uh, the National Commission uh, Chairman Herman uh, would vote with uh, Ban Johnson on almost all issues overruling the, the National League president if there was any controversy. Well, Ban Johnson did not want the 1910 World Series uh, to be overshadowed by a batting race with an automobile that uh, he and the other commissioners had some qualms about uh, at the start of the year. Of course, uh, Hugh Chalmers was rubbing his hands together. This publicity was like none other. He couldn't have hoped for 
for more publicity, although some of it was turning out to be a little negative. So anyway, uh, Ban Johnson calls uh, several people to come to Chicago, where Ban Johnson's American League offices were, in order to hold a, a quick investigation and try to put this this to rest. The uh, people called in were, first of all, he asked for a report from uh, uh, the home plate umpire, uh, who was Billy Evans at the time. And uh, he asked for a report from Evans. That report is unavailable. I wish I could have gotten to it when I was uh, researching for the book, but uh, no one knows if one still exists. It's certainly not available. The report supposedly, uh, according to newspaper reports, uh, cleared uh, the Browns of any uh, wrongdoing. Uh, of course, when you analyze this, uh, they were clear bunts. Uh, the umpire could only uh, uh, call what he sees on the field, uh, although Evans did say that he felt that he saw some fielding miscues that he questioned uh, on the uh, second game of the series, the day before the October 9th doubleheader, that he, that he did question, uh, but he couldn't do anything about it, but it did raise suspicion. Anyway, so his report apparently uh, did not uh, find any any fault. As it turns out, the others called in uh, were Jack O'Connor, the manager of the Browns, uh, Red Corden, the rookie third baseman, and uh, Harry Howell, the uh, uh, former uh, pitcher, now scout, who came up to the press box during the game. They were all called in. Meetings were held in secret. And Van Johnson uh, also ordered uh, McCroy, the uh, his league secretary, to do a very quick calculation and see uh, what the final uh, results were of the, of the batting race. So Van Johnson uh, comes out in front of a, a gaggle of reporters, says that they find no fault that the, the doubleheader was above board, clears everybody of any uh, possible wrongdoing, and declares Ty Cobb has won the, the uh, race by the narrowest of margins. Uh, he has a, has a 385 average rounded off, and uh, Lajoie was at 384-1. Uh, <laughs> so Ty Cobb is the, the batting champ, and uh, and they can now move on to the 1910 World Series. However, when Jack O'Connor and Harry Howell got back to St. Louis, uh, Robert Hedges, the Browns president, majority stockholder, uh, fires both of them. Uh, O'Connor still had a year to go in his contract, but the two of them were fired. Red Corridan was uh, uh, not disciplined in any fashion, and they moved on uh, with this. Interestingly enough, seven or eight Tigers players telegram Lajoie before the Van Johnson ruling, uh, congratulations on winning the car, uh, and uh, were very congratulatory towards Lajoie. Not upset that their teammate Cobb uh, was uh, looked like he was going to lose, uh, lose out on the car. But as it turned out, uh, Cobb was the winner. Hugh Chalmers, never to, to, to look another publicity uh, coup in the eye, decides he's going to award a vehicle to both Cobb and Lajoie. Cobb picked up his vehicle at the 1910 World Series, 
Lajeway. Uh, I believe he might have picked his up when the Reds and the uh, Naps were playing their inter-league uh, series. So basically, uh, that's where the uh, where the story of 1910 ends, but it doesn't really end there, and that's what makes this, to me, very uh, very uh, interesting story because. And this is where it gets really interesting is when someone went back to look at the numbers and, and calculate everything, they discovered that, wait a second, Cobb had two extra hits that he never actually earned. In 1981, now we're talking about 50, um, actually 71 years, uh, something uh, was found out. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, in the interim of that, there had been a, uh, a lawsuit filed by Jack O'Connor, and uh, it was filed in St. Louis, and he was trying to get his job back and also get damages for missing out on the second year of his contract. Uh, the, I was able to locate the transcript of that, uh, of that uh, trial. It went to trial and uh, get the testimony of Ann Johnson testified by way of deposition, Robert Hedges, I testified a number of the uh, uh, players uh, testified. Uh, Jack O'Connor testified. It made for some for fascinating reading, uh, but again, there was no way to definitively prove that. Uh, even though they accused uh, uh, Jack O'Connor of telling um, Corden to play way back and uh, uh, allow allow for the the, uh, the bunning that uh, that went on. Uh, the uh, they, they weren't able to really prove anything, and O'Connor won uh, his second year of the contract. I think it was five thousand uh, dollars, and and his uh, expenses of the lawsuit went up on appeal and was upheld on appeal. So now we're now we're in 1981, and a, uh, a member of uh, the Society for American Baseball Research and one of the top early. Uh, sabermetrics individuals, a sabermetrician, uh, Pete Palmer, is doing some work tabulating um, to uh, uh, come up with some of the early statistics that are being used in some of the baseball encyclopedias that are coming out. He comes upon the 1910 Tigers records, and he's looking through Ty Cobb's day-by-days. If you recall earlier in our conversation, the this is the record kept by the league secretary, uh, Rob McCroy, uh, where he jots down each day's statistics as turned in by the official scorekeeper, in this case with the St. Louis Republic. And he finds that there uh, is an error, that there had been a, uh, a uh, doubleheader played on September 24th of 1910, and McCroy had only entered one uh, of the games, and then uh, he did. Uh, there was a single game on the 25th, and he entered the game twice. So he had he had actually corrected his mistake unknowingly by, uh, the, uh, or maybe knowingly, just didn't go back and and uh, change the dates. But um, there was a, an extra game. But in going through the records. In a big hurry, uh, to, to, to uh, his defense, um, as directed by Ban Johnson, to come up with the with the statist, final statistics for the batting race, 
because actually there were these were done over a, a longer period of time and not released for several weeks after the season but here they had to come up with this uh, before the start of the world series he had re-entered that september 24th game because he looked at it and, and probably saw that he had not put in the second game as, as it turned out the that that uh, gave ty cobb an extra two hits in four times at bat and when you uh when you take that out of the equation the the actual uh, figures now favor uh, drop Cobb down and favor uh, Lajaway as the uh, the fellow with the top uh, average in the in the big leagues. He actually uh, Cobb's actual average was 383, uh, four, while uh, Cobb's was 338.41. So Cobb was uh, Lajaway was the actual winner of the of the batting race by statistics as counted by uh, later corrected uh, score uh, day-by-day uh, sheets. And there you have the uh, the story of the, the Chalmers race. And if you want a more in-depth look at it, Rick's book is fantastic. Um, I would highly suggest picking that up if you're looking for a, a read or I guess there's still time maybe to get Christmas presents. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that will be it, I think, for the, the rest of this year. I'm going to take some time off. So uh, until next year, thank you for listening to the podcast, Our Tribe History presented by Progressive and have a a great holiday season. You've been listening to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.